This phoenix forges with her golden plumes, without the help of art, a jewel bright, or her beautiful neck so smooth and white that it soothes every heart and mind consumes. She forges nature's diadem to inspire the air around with light. Love's silent spear draws out of it a liquid, subtle fire that burns me even in the chilliest air. In purple gown and with an azure stole, full of roses her fair shoulders she veils. A new attire, a beauty single, soul, she stores and hides in her sweet lap the leaven and the rich legends of Arabian tales, this stately bird that flies across our heaven. Hi, this is Alexa. And this is Ian. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. Can you guess what we're talking about? I think it might be the phoenix. Is it the phoenix? It is the phoenix. Another bird episode. This is good. Yeah, I do like these bird episodes. Unfortunately, we can't have a real live phoenix on the show. But um, that said, uh, this poem that you read, tell me a little bit about what that was. So that is a poem by a guy called Francesco Petrarca, or in English, Petrarch, who is an Italian poet. He's the guy who made the sonnet super famous. And he wrote a bunch of poems to a woman named Laura. Um, This is one of them uh, in which he compares her to the phoenix. He compares Laura to an awful lot of things, I have to say. Uh, but it's the beginning of a, a certain kind of uh, love poetry that we think of as connected with the sonnet. And Petrarch, an early Italian writer, uh, 14th century, becomes super popular everywhere. Poets are emulating Petrarch right through the Renaissance period. It's interesting that Petrarch is using the phoenix, and, and he uses the phoenix in other, other poems to Laura as well. So he's quite fond of the phoenix as an emblem of love, which actually is a little different, I think, than we're going to find in some of the other, some of the other lore and kind of iconography of the phoenix. But I can, I can talk more about that when we come to the, the early modern period. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting that he imagines his beloved, um, this sort of unobtainable young woman, Laura, as his as a phoenix, when the sort of more traditional medieval understanding of the phoenix is as a figure or a sort of metaphor, I guess you could say, for the resurrection of Christ. But the phoenix is a lot older than Christianity. How far does it go back? Well, the first mentions of it are in Greek literature, ancient Greek literature from, you know, the fifth century BCE. So Herodotus mentions it in his histories, you know, mid fifth century, so classical Greek literature. Um, and he, he mentions this sacred bird. Um, he, he admits he's never seen it himself, actually. Um, but he but he reports that um, it comes but seldom into Egypt. So one has to imagine that the phoenix of Herodotus's writing is an Egyptian character, I guess you would say, an Egyptian deity, perhaps, who's been translated into a kind of Greek setting. 
he's associated with the Temple of the Sun in Egypt, says Herodotus. So maybe some form of Horus or one of the other solar deities in the Egyptian pantheon. So really old is the short answer to your question. It is, goes way back. Is But is Herodotus convinced? Does Herodotus seem convinced that this is a, a real bird in the way that you know other natural history is reported? Or is Herodotus giving us the phoenix as already kind of a religious symbol? Um, well, I mean, it is interesting that you, you should ask whether Herodotus actually believes in the phoenix, because Herodotus generally will weigh in on, on whether, you know, some story that he's heard seems plausible or not plausible. But in the case of the phoenix, he's a little bit, um, he waffles a little bit. As I mentioned, he says, you know, I've never seen it myself, but I have seen pictures of it. Um, it only comes to Egypt once every 500 years, as the people of Heliopolis say. And the picture that he's seen shows a magnificent bird, partly golden, mostly red, kind of like an eagle. Um, but then he goes on to say the Egyptians have this story about this bird that I don't believe. The, the story that he tells is not the story that we typically associate with the phoenix, which we first hear a bit later. And again, this is another classical writer, um, Ovid, writing in the first century CE, um, who is saying, like, this is a story that we hear, but it comes from another place far away and a sort of exotic place. In this case, Assyria, not Egypt. Okay. Um, but it says, and this is a little more familiar uh, version of the, of the phoenix in that it, like, lives in this... Um, incense tree and it um, is associated with spices and when it has lived for 500 years it builds a nest in a palm tree and then you know lines it with spices again and then it dies and then the child springs from the body of the father so that's a little bit more the story again that we're familiar with also associated with a sun god, in this case, Hyperion. Um, we start to get the story about the phoenix lighting itself on fire. <laughs> then Wait, so, in, so how, how does that work? Yeah, so the idea is the phoenix, at the end of its usually 500-year lifespan, sources vary. Uh, sometimes it's only like 328 years. Um, but, but generally it's 500 years or sometimes 540 years that it burns itself up at the end of this cycle. And then a maggot appears like a little worm. And on day one, it's a worm. On day two, it becomes in the form of a baby bird. And then on day three, it's the full grown phoenix for the next 500 years. So we find that in another Roman writer, Pliny the Elder, although the actual fire isn't mentioned there either. You know, the association with the sun, the idea of the reincarnation and the way that the sun sets and rises again, I mean, these are clearly very, very ancient religious ideas. And at some, at some early point, the phoenix is clearly one of these solar deities that's also sort of akin to a bird that flies across the sky. Yeah. I mean, I know there are other, uh, there, 
other cultures have similar kinds of birds. So you think, mm-hmm. you know, mythologies require some kind of creatures that do these kinds of things, and often they come up with birds to do it. I, I don't know, but I, you could see how you could see how it would arrive as a the result of a solar deity or a need to have a mythological underpinning for the ideas of death and rebirth, which are sort of fundamental to the natural world. Yeah, absolutely. So is that the I mean, story that Herodotus does, does, does it, is that the, the story, the setting itself on fire, the story that he says he disagrees with? No, no, it's even crazier than that. Um, <laughs> he says, the Egyptians tell the tale of this bird's devices, which I do not believe. He comes, they say, from Arabia, bringing his father to the sun's temple enclosed in myrrh, and there buries him. His manner of bringing is this. First, he molds an egg of myrrh as heavy as he can carry. And when he has proved its weight by lifting it, he then hollows out the egg and puts his father in it, covering over with more myrrh the hollow in which the body lies, so that the egg being with his father in it of the same weight as before, the phoenix enclosing him, carries him to the Temple of the Sun in Egypt. Such is the tale of what is done by this bird. So he's very <laughs> skeptical of this whole myrrh egg, the, the sort of uh, kinder egg with the uh, daddy surprise inside. He, yeah. he finds that implausible. I but guess not, it... mind you, he does not find the idea of a giant bird that lives for, you know, 500, 500 years. 500 years, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that he also disagrees with that part because, you know, at least by the, the Renaissance, the thing that's, you know, that everyone knows about the phoenix is that there is only one, right? There, there is yeah. no, there's no daddy phoenix. There's just the phoenix, which dies and then is reborn as the phoenix. Right. Though it's interesting because all of the classical accounts have this thing about the father phoenix and the son phoenix, and so you can see why, like, by the time you get to these early Christian writers, like Isidore of Seville, the um, the Iberian uh, theologian of the seventh century you know, they are interested in this phoenix um, because of its singularity. So like God, it is singular, Uh Um, but it also has a son, right? So it's that kind of uh, mystery of how can a singular being also have a son. Also this idea of resurrection and rising from its own ashes. So it, you know, for early Christians becomes very very quickly and easily a kind of figure of resurrection. Well, so do they find the phoenix in the Bible? You know, because we've talked in the past about how important it is that an animal is or isn't in the Bible for the belief in that creature, because Mm -hmm. they're willing to say, well, I don't know, I have never seen it, but you know, it must exist because it's in scripture. Is the phoenix in scripture? Um... Well, if you were to ask Thomas of Cantempre, the 13th century writer of a sort of book on all the natural things, and he, he was an encyclopedist, he would tell you yes. I mean, sort of. He says that the city of Heliopolis, which is associated with the phoenix and its legend, um, was built before the arrival of the Savior in the land of Egypt, and that in it, the likeness of the Jerusalem temple, a temple was built in the honor of the Most High God. So there was a Jewish temple in the city of Heliopolis uh, by Anya, the son of that Anya, who is read in the book of 
Maccabees by the order of Ptolemaeus, the king of Egypt, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, and there will be an altar to the Lord in the land of Egypt. And so I guess what Thomas is seeing here is that there are allusions to the phoenix and its city in the Bible. The story itself, perhaps not directly uh, described in the Bible. But but the fact that it is illusion rather than a reference to the phoenix as an as as you know as animal is mm-hmm. what what allows them to really emphasize this symbolic meaning and mm-hmm. and not not so much sort of double down on the well but there are real ones you know out there to be found <laughs> as they well, do for you other know, animals. Here's a useful thing about the phoenix: if there's only one and it only comes to Egypt once every five hundred years. Um, you don't really need to worry, I guess, in That's that right. case, about whether you've seen it or not, because right. it, it's so rare and so unusual and so fortunate would be the person who had seen it. Like its singularity makes it yeah. less Unimp- important. That, yeah, <laughs> you know, the reality is not That's right. Even if it's absolutely real, you know, you're never going to... Don't put it on your life list if you're a bird watcher. Right? Yes, because... exactly. That wouldn't be wise. Yeah. And I mean, I also feel like the phoenix, the sort of association the phoenix with the sun and the idea of of a sort of sun deity, you know, I mean, you do see the phoenix, you see it every day, it flies across the sky in the form Mm -hmm. of the sun. So I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm not really sure it's necessary to see it. There is a poem, an old English poem. Um, that's found in the Exeter book, and it's been translated by this scholar from um, Notre Dame University, Richard Faye. He translated this poem called The Phoenix of Paradise, and he talks about how the the woods of paradise, the forest of, of paradise, is guarded by a bird, and it's a phoenix. And so that sort of sense of this is a bird of Eden, of the some mysterious place in the east from which the sun rises and passes across the heavens. So even in a Christian context, there's still this idea that, that the sun and the phoenix aren't too terribly different. Does that connect it also with time itself? Because the sun is the, you know, the, the rise and set of the sun is the marker of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's another aspect of this, the idea of the kind of timelessness of the phoenix constantly cycling through the rise and the fall or the production from the worm back to the blaze of glory at the end and then the worm again. And I mean, clearly by the time you get to the 14th century, the phoenix is not just a figure for the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not just a figure for this sort of cyclical pattern of the sun. It's become something a little bit more complex in this poetic sphere. So just as a sort of point of interest, is the phoenix usually referred to as a he or a she in the classical era in the in the Middle Ages? That is interesting, but I think the the male gender is either implied or stated. So the Old English poem clearly identifies the phoenix as a he. Okay. Um, in the Latin works that I was talking about, uh, Thomas of Contemporary and Isidore of Seville mention the father. So if the Phoenix is its own father in a sense, yeah, it's a father with a son, not a mother with a son. It's a boy Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) In as much as 
gender is even at stake, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, it becomes more at stake, I, I think, right? In other words, like, because, you know, the natural history of the phoenix raises some interesting questions about gender. Is, like, the popularity of the phoenix, if you sort of think about, you know, how often are people referring to it or using it? Is it just a, is it a constant throughout the classical era and then on into the early and then later Middle Ages? Are there, you know, is it is it becoming more popular? Mm. Uh, is it is it? go through a time when everyone had it everywhere and then becomes less popular. I know the the Romans had it on a lot of their coins, had a Mm. phoenix on the back of the emperor. Yeah. I mean, it's in the Physiologus. It's in these old English poems. It's in, you know, if you're writing an encyclopedia of natural things, you're going to include the phoenix. So it's there. It's not like the dragon or maybe some of these other fantastic beasts, the wyvern or something, where you see it showing up on a lot of heraldry, as far as I know. Um, So I don't think it has the same kind of popularity as some of the other fantastic beasts that we've talked about. But it's it's there. I mean, there are heraldic crests with phoenixes. Phoenixes? What's the plural of phoenix? there can't be but, a plural of a phoenix because there is only one. <laughs> that's true. There can't be. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so. um, you know, I think it's a funny one in terms of that. So it's sort of like middle popularity. Okay. Not it's it's no dragon. It's no it's no dragon for the Middle Ages. No dragon. So you said spices. The spice that's always mentioned where I encounter it is cinnamon. Like it builds its nest out of cinnamon. And there's this idea that if you want, you know, really good cinnamon, you can get it from the nest. Although the fact that you'd have to wait 500 years to get your cinnamon kind of puts paid to that. But is, is that, a, is that, does that specific spice go back to the um, classical yeah. or Middle Ages? Well, it's Salinas mentions, um, so that's in the third century. He's a, another of these sort of like writers about the wonders of the world. And he mentions that the funeral pyre is built of cinnamon. Okay. So yeah, yeah that, that's where that would come from. But different spices get mentioned all the time. So a spicy bird. Yes, uh, he's a, a very a, spicy bird. A fragrant bird. There's a lot of the, you know, smells good. The beauty of the phoenix, I think, is is super important, right? That it's got this amazing plumage as oh, well yeah, as everything like else. Crimson and like crimson is always mentioned and a golden glow and you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's it's big. It's like an e- sort of eagle-sized yeah. in in the popular imagination. So if there weren't just one of them, it would have supplanted the eagle as the prime, as the you know king of the birds, right? Probably, yeah. You know, yeah. If it Probably. if it were a real animal flying about, which uh, <laughs> you know like, that question gets asked <laughs> in the early modern period, you know, and there there's some answers, but uh, but right. yeah, I could see I could you know it, you could see that that the it combines the sort of like the sm- the odors and. A visual impression that is often associated with sanctity, right? Like, you know, things, saints smell great even after they're dead uh, for a long time. The sort of the beauty that we see kind of emblematized in a lot of uh, medieval art in, in cathedrals and things, that idea that the divine is beautiful and beautiful yeah, is absolutely. to be beautiful. And, is and also, the, the divine is like 
full of light, right? So that kind of like fiery light that is the essence of divinity. It passes through everything. It it literally illuminates the world, but it it also sort of energizes the world. Does it get associated with martyrdom at all because of the the idea that it, you know, is consumed in flames? Or is that I mean, too again, late going for... back to that old English poem, there's a little bit of an, an indication that like the followers of Christ are also like the Phoenix and that they will um, immolate themselves with the belief, with the faith, with the knowledge that they will rise again. So yeah, it can be associated with martyrdom for sure. We, we really can't talk about the Phoenix without mentioning Albus Dumbledore and his Phoenix and the family tradition of of phoenixes in uh harry potter universe i guess and (laughs) fox the um the phoenix who's so important in those books you know he the the representation of that very large eagle-like bird which has like this sort of power to burst into flame and not burn yeah Um, yeah i mean i feel like the the filmmakers really captured the uh the essence of the medieval phoenix. It's a very beautiful animal. And we even, I think, even get to see it self-immolate. And then, yeah, there's know, a, a scene where, again. yeah, and, you know, Harry sort of says, I think there's something wrong with your bird. And Dumbledore is like, oh, he's, you know, I'm so glad he's doing that. He's been looking a bit peaky lately, <laughs> right? Like yeah. self-immolation is something that happens like every other Tuesday, like you wash your hair or something like that. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and... Okay. Uh, Dumbledore's phoenix is male, right? Yes. Uh, for sure. And it's it's interesting that it, it has a name because that implies that there's more than one. Otherwise, you don't need a name, right? If you're the only living creature. Do you True. also need a name? Are you not the, is that the phoenix your name? Yeah, true. And I think in the Harry Potter verse, there's like a series of phoenix is definitely plural. Yep, yep. You know, like yep. there are different characters who have phoenixes. So anyway. interesting. Turns it into a, yeah, like a type of, you know, like a type of animal or a type of magical creature. Leave it to J.K. Rowling to lean into the gender of the phoenix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we probably shouldn't go there. This is a, you know, a family friendly podcast. Um, <laughs> so. Ian, tell me a little bit about what happens with the sort of feminization of the phoenix in Renaissance literature. So, you know, I, I think the 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 ultimate end of this is really a, a, they begin thinking about the idea of giving gender to a creature that only exists in one form and doesn't reproduce, um, mm-hmm. you know, sexually. But I think the fact that, it, you know, it becomes female in part because of the influence of of Petrarch, right? Who, you know, mm. calls Laura a phoenix. So then it becomes female, and then uh, it also get a, gets applied most famously to uh, Queen Elizabeth, which I'll say, you know, more about. So it makes oh, sense. Yeah, that, I want to hear about that. That you know that like the phoenix is a she because it's Laura, it's Elizabeth, uh, rather than a, it's not a deliberate decision to say like, oh no, they must be female in a natural mm-hmm. history sense at all, right? It's more, it's, it's a sort of popular version of it. And what you see in the early modern period is that the phoenix becomes less philosophical 
and less spiritual, although those, those, those meanings never go away, and it becomes more political and social. It also mm-hmm. becomes a little bit less real in natural history, um, but it becomes part of a, a debate about you know gender and species, I think, right? Um, and then also mm-hmm. it's connected with exploration because they're discovering birds that could be the phoenix <laughs> or a phoenix, assuming they're phoenixes out there. Mm. The short answer is the phoenix goes viral in the in the early modern period. Um, <laughs> it's just everybody is you know out there is using the phoenix in in their writing. And you know if you know any famous Renaissance person, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, like they all were fond of the phoenix and referred to the phoenix as a figure in their work. So everybody's talking about the phoenix. It's not just Petrarch. The phoenix, I'd, I'd have to say, is more talked about than dragons. Wow! In in England, they're you know they name ships. Um, they love to have these these names for sort of interesting names for ships, uh, like the mm-hmm. Golden Hind, which was originally the Golden Pelican, uh, or the Golden Phoenix, right? So like you think about sort of popularity there. It's it's super popular there as well. Mm. So much so that by the you know in early modern English, the word phoenix itself has simply become like a word for any person who is uniquely excellent. So, you know, you could call your, you know, your child a phoenix if they've done something amazing and unique. (laughs) Uh, And and nobody would bat an eye about that. It's it's not quite to the level, uh, it it hasn't become a dead, a totally dead metaphor uh, in the way that calling somebody a pig means they're, you know, messy, but nobody, nobody thinks about pigs when they say that. Uh, But but I don't think they're necessarily really thinking about the Phoenix when they call somebody a Phoenix anymore. Right. It's just become a sort mm-hmm. of a widespread thing. So it's, it's just part of the social landscape. It's a word for unique uniqueness and excellence. And it's, it's, you know, seen everywhere. It also becomes it's like the word brilliant in a way, because, yeah, yeah. you know, a Phoenix is literally brilliant. Right. But it becomes a figurative kind of brilliance. Figurative, yeah, figurative brilliance. And also the uniqueness, right? Like, so if you've done something nobody else has done, then that, you know, like that makes you uh, a phoenix. If you're unlike anybody else, then, you know, you're a phoenix. Uh, that you, that sort of uniqueness, which I think that, that little poem that I started with emphasizes, yeah. that's the part of, of the beauty, A, but then also the uniqueness of it. There's only one. She is alone, soul. So I'm guessing maybe Shakespeare had some interest yeah. in the phoenix. Yeah, Shakespeare uses the phoenix quite a bit. Uh, you know, not as much as some uh, some other animals, but again, it's it's hard to I I don't know of any uh sort of well-known writer from the period who doesn't use the phoenix somewhere significantly. Because it's just become it's it's sort of part of the popular imagination and I don't know whether in the you know, in the Middle Ages whether, you know, the proverbial you know, man on the street would sort of instantly recognize the, you know, a reference to the Phoenix and what it would mean and what it's supposed to do. You know, it would depend, I suppose, on, you know, how widespread that, that religious uh, allegorical or symbolic meaning is. But I can tell you that, you know, like anyone would know what a Phoenix is and, and, and why would one would refer to it. It also becomes part of political iconography because it's a powerful figure uh, mm-hmm. And yet, what was once a kind of a religious figure gets repurposed for political reasons. You know, you you mentioned that it's not super popular in heraldry, but I think this may be uh, one way in which it becomes 
uh, partly political mm-hmm. because having a phoenix on your shield is you know becomes less of a spiritual statement and more a, a statement about you know your your mm-hmm. your family your place in the social order all those kinds of things but the super famous example of this is queen elizabeth because mm-hmm. she jumped on the whole phoenix thing big time and sometimes you know like people would refer, refer to elizabeth uh, just as a phoenix in that sort of ordinary sense. They would call her like mm-hmm. the phoenix of her sex. Uh, and then, you know, mm-hmm. after the Spanish Armada big uh, occurs, 1588, this is uh, Spain's attempt to conquer England and they send all these ships and they're defeated. Everyone in England, of course, is super excited about this. And that's when, you know, they call Elizabeth the phoenix of the world and the angel of England, right? So like mm. highfalutin terms here, but not specifically something that she is adopting, but she does. She uses the image of the phoenix. It's on a lot of a lot of jewelry. It's on images that are associated with her. Mm. There's a famous ring called the Checkers Ring, which it's called Checkers because it it is currently living at the country estate of the Prime Minister of England, which happens to be called Checkers. That's not oh, it's okay. not a reference to like anything about the ring itself or the patterns on the ring. It's a beautiful oh, okay. ring. Or the game. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's made of uh, mother of pearl and it's got rubies on it. It's uh, it's a fantastic ring. And the top of it opens and inside the, underneath the gem are, uh, there's a picture of Elizabeth. And then there's a picture of another young woman. And there's a huge debate about whether it's Anne Boleyn, whether it's Elizabeth herself in a younger version, whether it's Catherine Parr. Lot of discussion about those so like a lot of interest in the checkers ring is focused on like who's inside the ring but underneath on the inside of the ring is a phoenix there's also uh you know sort of more widespread images so you think you know a single jewel or piece of jewelry doesn't doesn't do much but there's an image by this guy named crispin van de Pass that shows queen elizabeth standing and it's a print right so this is it's not a it's not a painting right like this is a print so it's reproduced right passed out elizabeth is standing there um she's in between two different pillars and on the top of one pillar are the arms of england and a pelican and on the mm-hmm. other pillar is the arms of the tudors one of the one of the things associated with the tudors and a phoenix so in the oh. background, on either side of her, are those two uh, emblems. And Interestingly, all, both both symbols for Christ in both symbols in for Christ medieval yep. iconography. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and both <clears throat> then also you know like she's adopting those as symbols for her reign. And we talked a lot yeah. if, about the pelican. I encourage our listeners if you haven't listened to our pelican episode, it's amazing. Uh, but you know the pelican is the nurturing mother figure. The phoenix is. All the things that we have said, probably also chastity in relation to Queen Elizabeth. Um, you know, it's a fig- it is a figure for virginity because it doesn't it doesn't have any sex. There being only one of them. Uh, yes. Her, yeah. Her, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> also not the you kind know, of like, sex they're worried about <laughs> everlasting rebirth, etc. Interestingly, the crown that Elizabeth is wearing in this print is what we would call the imperial crown. So oh. you know, you're familiar with like kings. Queens have crowns. If they're a king or a queen, they they have just a regular crown. If you're an emperor, you get a crown that has extra parts to it. There are these little arching, like little arches that go up in the middle of the crown. 
we're so familiar with it now that we don't always think of it as separate from the crown of a king or queen. And that's probably because Victoria became the, you know, the Empress Victoria and wore that mm-hmm. kind of a crown. But here's Elizabeth. England is not really an empire at this point. It's like a wannabe empire. There's like imperial ambition. They claim to own parts of France, et cetera. But this image has her with the imperial crown on. So it's a claim to empire. Uh, Also, the fact that she's between two pillars is a reference to the Spanish empire, which used the two pillars of Hercules as their emblem. So she's reclaiming that. And then the phoenix is also associated with empire, probably by by the, the sort of the Roman fascination with the Phoenix and they put it on their coins as an idea of like everlasting, you know, everlasting empire or at least long lived, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Empire. So very, very, poli- it's like, this is like political propaganda. It's a pretty high quality image. So it's, it's not like a woodcut designed to be reproduced in like, you know, lots and lots of forms, but it, it's an engraving, but it's still a print where the people are going to see it and it's super political. So mm-hmm. she's saying, I, yeah, I'm the, I am the phoenix of the world. Look at me. I've got the phoenix plus the phoenix and the pelican. Uh, Interesting. She had two portraits painted. We talked about the pelican portrait when we did the pelican. There's also a phoenix yeah. portrait of her where she is dressed up, dressed to the nines as Elizabeth often is. And she's wearing a, a phoenix gem that she is pointing to with her fingers. Uh, and the, mm. right in the middle of her chest, right? So there's like that mm. that particular gem. That I don't like that gem itself has not survived. But we mm. do have we have the we have the checkers ring. We have something called the phoenix jewel, which is an image of Queen Elizabeth. And on the reverse, on the backside of her, is a phoenix. And then we have this really weird thing called the phoenix medal, which is a picture of Queen Elizabeth on the front uh, and the phoenix on the back. It's a sort of a oblong metal presumably be there's more than one version of it i don't know if there's more than one that survives it's at the british museum but the idea is you know it's like a badge that you could wear if you're sort of you know like one of her um, ladies in waiting or like close to the queen in some way you could wear this badge we don't know exactly when it was made the claim the, the claim that is made early on is that it comes from 1574 or 75 which was a plague year a really really bad plague year in london like oh. Like, so it might have some sort of apotropaic or like protective function. It, it maybe you know, wear, wear this phoenix and be protected from from disease. The mo- the <laughs> mottos are a little unusual. So the motto in the front says about Queen Elizabeth, "Alas, that virtue." It's in Latin, so I'm, I'm, this is translation. Alas, that virtue endued with so much beauty should not uninjured enjoy perpetual life. And then on the back, it says about the phoenix, happy Arabs, whose only phoenix reproduces by its death a new phoenix. Wretched English, whose only phoenix becomes unhappy fate, the last in our country. Oh. Yeah. Both sides of this medal are referring to her mortality. Yeah. And is it like bemoaning the fact that she, I mean, it's interesting because so much of the iconography that you've been talking about and so much of the sort of poetry and her honor and her praise and her own imagery revolves around this idea of her virginity and her resistance to the to the role of mother and wife right and and this seems to almost be lamenting that yeah it's also interesting because it's hard to imagine how elizabeth would have permitted 
she didn't like people referring to her mortality. And one of her mottos was semper eadem in Latin, which means always the same. And Mm -hmm. she insisted on being painted as, you know, beautiful, regardless of her advancing age in some of these pictures. Right, Uh, right. Like, did she really want people walking around saying like, oh, our phoenix, she's going to die. Yeah. You know? Weird. Um, but huh. but there was a lot so of anxiety this was, about this. This was like clearly a prestige object. Yes. Yeah. That it's you a... would want people to see. And then it has this slightly problematic, p- potentially treacherous message about the queen's mortality. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, she, early on, she was under a lot of pressure to, you know, marry and have kids. Uh, this is uh, probably a little bit late, you know, a bit late for that. But also, mm-hmm. it, it's not really, it's not using the phoenix to enjoin marriage because. Phoenix can't mm. go off and get married. That's the point. The Phoenix is, you know, the the unique Phoenix, right? Like all, all exactly, you can do is yeah. say, I'm sorry, our Phoenix is going to die and not come back. <laughs> wow. Uh, but that's you can in, that's yeah, intense. You can guess that, you know, her successor, uh, James, also, you know, gets portrayed in part by Shakespeare as kind of the the her it's it's elizabeth reborn right like elizabeth is the phoenix who has like come back from the ashes to be our new king uh, yeah you know propaganda goes on the king is dead long live the king all that kind of thing huh so that's the that's the political angle you know super famous with elizabeth you'll see it everywhere you know if you think elizabethan phoenix you should think elizabeth herself you know yeah. and interesting that she also gets compared to Laura, the laura of petrarch's sonnets who was compared to the phoenix it's all a nice big right. kind of like little cyclical right. kind of social stuff interesting so at what point do people decide that the phoenix is really only a legend or a literary figure do we still have the phoenix as a sort of interest of natural historians in the renaissance or are they pretty much skeptics when it comes to the phoenix uh, well, skepticism piece. definitely emerges, right? Uh, and it is ironic that Herodotus himself was, you know, the guy, the, the person who's responsible for the phoenix, you know, early on sort of says like, well, maybe not, right? Uh, but people do, do start to, to doubt the phoenix, particularly in the 17th century. Although one of the interesting things that happens is that as they discover I'll go out there and they're discovering new birds from Asia, uh, Asia Minor. Uh, there's always the naturalist who says like, oh, well, this is the phoenix, right? You know, it's, it's that, oh, like, sure, never mind the 500 years unique phoenix, you know, like there's this real bird and this is the thing that gave rise to the, you know, the legend of the phoenix. Here it is. We found it. The most famous is the bird of paradise because its plumage mm. looks exactly like a phoenix's plumage. But the bird of paradise is not that well known either. Uh, skins of the bird of paradise are making their way back to Europe. But because the skins have, have been you know, trimmed up and the, like, like the feet have been cut off, right? They're not part of the skin. You have naturalists who say like, well, the bird of paradise has no feet. <laughs> like they kind of come up, come up with a whole natural history and set of behaviors that account for like the fact that it has no feet and what it must do. Uh, there's two other birds that I am, I don't even know if they're, these are real birds, um, or themselves legends, or also just birds of paradise. One's called a Semenda, one's called a Rhintasses. I think they may, they, they may be, um, real, uh, Asian birds or Southeast Asian birds. 
But anyway, so they're they're looking around. They're saying like, hey, there's these birds we don't know about. Maybe they're the phoenix. But you can't do that without discounting all the cool, all the super cool stuff about the phoenix, right? The reason that makes the phoenix the phoenix is not just the color of the bird or that it is a bird, but it's the rebirth and the ashes and the living 500 years and the emblem of this. And like all of that has to go. So you also have people saying, let's look at that legend and explain why it can't happen. Uh, you know, like why it's unlikely that a unique bird can live for 500 yeah. years never get eaten or die of accident, right? you know, like, right. right. Like it's uh, like, it only takes w- one arrow in the wrong place. And like the Phoenix would be gone forever. Uh, how could that, you know, how could that possibly be? Mm. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about Noah's Ark and how, you know, Noah's Ark, there were, t- it was two by two, right? The animals went on two by two. It never says the Phoenix went on one by one. <laughs> Right. Which, you would ha- which you would have to do. The only phoenix wasn't on the ark. Their phoenix, you know, it's not. And and they look at the scripture and they say, there is no phoenix in scripture. This passage has been mistranslated. There's only a couple that may, you know, might have phoenix. Uh, but like, yeah. no, it's not a phoenix. It's the palm tree or it's sand or it's something else. So yeah, not in the scripture, like, you know, unreasonably weird. No way that we could imagine this this happening. They can't, you know, you can't have a phoenix. And of course, our <laughs> our great. friend Thomas Brown, who wrote his big book about, you know, his big myth-busting yeah. book, takes on the phoenix and says all these things about it. But, you mm-hmm. know, there are contemporaries uh, who still believe the phoenix really exists. And there's, there's one guy who wrote an entire long passage about how Thomas Brown is wrong. And every single point that he made is like, no, no, there really could be a phoenix. Like, it's okay. It could, could actually be reproduced this way. The biggest problem is the reproduction, not because they don't believe in reproduction with that, without sex, but that because they don't believe that complex animals like birds can reproduce without having two sexes. So they're willing yeah. to think about, you know, worms may be fine, although as we said, yeah. like maybe rats and mice may be okay, right? Like, but everyone thinks like there's no way the bird, uh, like an eagle-like bird with amazing plumage could just... Like yeah. come out of ashes, grow and, from a worm, grow from a worm, right? Like it's just, it's yeah. not not that thing, right? Well, and it, I mean, it's interesting because, like, even in the 18th century, Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish father of, you know, taxonomy, um, wrote he wrote a little thing called the um, the Paradoxa, where he like addresses animals and plants that seem unlikely at best or whatever. Yeah. Like it's it's sort of his mythbusters and still in the 18th century Linnaeus has to take the time to talk about the phoenix. Yep. He has yep. a really great explanation. Oh, he says I... it's it, it's a confusion. There's this kind of palm tree. Ah, That's right. the, the palm tree from Crete is the phoenix. It's a kind of tree, not <laughs> not a bird at all. Um and and it's just that in ancient lore, these things were confused because the phoenix was said to build the nest in which it self-immolated in a palm tree. Right. But he, he kind of ties himself in knots to make the, that explanation, you know? Yes. Um, and keep, keep in mind, Linnaeus also uh, calls the bird a paradise. The Latin term he uses is without feet. <laughs> So right, he's right. perfectly capable of replicating that. And, you know, people had, there is a palm tree, you know, 
called Phoenix, right? And people had noticed oh, yeah. this this connection, right? And it's a way of discounting that it's it is you do have to tie yourself in knots to explain how a palm tree got confused with a bird. Um, yeah, a date I, palm specifically. I, I, I have to say, yeah. So the myth busting is sort of a gradual. There, there's no, you know, this is not like the unicorn horn where somebody says like, guys, I found it, right? I know what exactly what it is. Uh, mm-hmm. This is more like nobody who has any sense believes in this thing as real, but but I do, <laughs> or I do, and I like. Yes, yeah. You know, like so that it has to keep getting debunked and debunked and, and debunked. So and it will probably rise again from whatever debunking you. Yeah. You deal it. But I, you <laughs> it know, will like, rise from the ashes of its having been debunked. I think the the interesting part in terms of, you know, fantastic creatures is that a large like the the best debunking centers on the idea of uh, sort of sexuality and gener- generation, right? This idea mm-hmm. that well, if it's first of all, if it's a unique bird, it is not a species. It is not a kind of bird, right? Because mm-hmm. kinds of birds are they're always multiple, and they have right. a, a they have an entry in their natural history that explains you know how they lay nests and have eggs and have babies. You can't do that with this, and mm-hmm. so calling it a he or a she is you know it can't be either one, right? Like because if there's a he phoenix, there must be a she phoenix, and world of binary opposition there's a she phoenix Mm -hmm. presumably there's a he phoenix i kind of like the phoenix for being a bit different from all the other animals that way it's the original non-binary bird it is it's it's a it's a tranimal yes it is (laughs) i'm going to say that (laughs) that we should always refer to the phoenix as they they (laughs) yes yes Hello, my name is Phoenix, and I use they/them pronouns. <laughs> they/them pronouns. Exactly. All right. Well, until the next time. Yes. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com, and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Mm-hmm.